So, Jay, is Calvin Rankin a mutant or not? Mimic? Yeah, Miles, he is. I thought his powers came from a lab accident. Shouldn't he be a mutate? A lab accident activated his powers, specifically his ability to absorb and duplicate other people's. Like Rogue? Somewhat. Mimic's powers generally don't require physical contact, they don't strip away the source's powers, and how long he gets to keep the absorbed powers varies pretty significantly. I thought he always had the original X-Men's, kind of like their version of the Super Scroll. Again, it's on and off, and he definitely no longer has angels, at least. Yeah, I could see the wings being difficult to maintain. Especially after Cable cut them off to sew back onto Angel, yeah. Wait... I thought Angel had his own wings. At least, eventually. I'm pretty sure they grew back at some point after Apocalypse replaced them with the fancy metal ones. Well, sure, but that's the adult Angel. I'm talking about time-displaced kid Angel. I'm fairly sure he also has wings. Ah, but see, you're forgetting the Black Vortex. The Black Vortex. You know, magic space doorway that amps up people's superpowers. There was a whole event. Oh yeah, but I thought the X-Men gave those powers back. Only some of them. Angel decided that having wings made of fire was actually pretty rad, so he decided to keep those. Can't argue with that. That is pretty rad. What it wasn't, though, was consistent with the continuity to which he'd have to return when he went back to the past. Okay, thus the severed mimic wings. Exactly, or at least that's the idea, because the thing is... Those create their own set of continuity issues, or at least they should've. How so? Okay, so the X-Men were pulled into the future just as Hank McCoy was quitting the, the team. That places them around X-Men number 8, which is the same point that they're then sent back to. What does that have to do with Angel's wings? Well, as of X-Men number 8, the X-Men haven't met Mimic yet. He isn't going to show up till 11 issues later, meaning that when he absorbs Angel's powers at that point... Wait, wouldn't that mean... Mimic is actually duplicating his own duplicate wings. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 304 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our inadvertent guests, the Crickets Outside, who I can hear through a closed window in my headphones, and so whom I suspect may make it into the final uh, cut of the podcast as well. Sorry about that. No, it'll be fine. It'll be like that one scene with Sid in the first season of Legion that was all creepy and cool. Although I guess that describes a lot of the scenes in Legion. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, that that cold open, I had never realized that plot hole. But you're totally right. Right? I actually didn't work it out until I was doing the research for the cold open, because I was going to write about Cable taking Mimic's wings and sewing them onto Warren, and that, that was going to be the, the sort of big twist, and then I realized that it created a time loop wherein Mimic is copying what are already a copy of the wings he copied off Angel, which are etc. ad infinitum. That is glorious. Jay, congratulations for breaking X-Men continuity just a little bit more. In my defense, I broke nothing. I just call him like I see him. Fair enough. So this episode, we are going to see the Mimic, but what we're mainly going to see is a new direction for X-Force. Because longtime X-Force scribe Fabian Nacieza is genuinely, sadly, no longer on the book. His long run is over. I love it so much. And now we have a new writer and a new artist. Um, and one of them is is very germane to the discussion last episode, and that is Jeff Loeb, who, um, it turns out is kind of super racist. Yeah, apparently he talked about how no one cares about Asian people when he was working on the Daredevil show. I don't know, it's all still very new, I don't have a lot of the details, but, but come on, I was so excited about doing an episode about comics not created by any shitty people, and, aww. Okay, as far as I know, which admittedly has its limits, artist Adam Polina 
is still okay. Although we we did listeners dig up some kind of amazing backstory on him. I I, I would I would posit that it falls firmly in the in the positive though. Oh man. Okay, so credit to Austin Gorton for this one. He dug this bit up on his examinations review of one of the X Force issues we're covering. I'm just gonna quote Wikipedia. Early in his career, Polina worked for Friendly Comics, an adult comics publisher owned by pornographer and ferret advocate Eric Shefferman. While at Friendly, Polina provided pencils for the popular Sex Trek series, an adult parody of Star Trek featuring characters named Jism T. Cock and Jean-Luc Prickhard. I'm really hung up on the ferret advocate part. Pornographer and ferret advocate. Do you think that was on his business card? Oh, that would be great. That would be such a good, like, official title. Right? Well, sort of, sort of like how, so, um, Richard Starkings is officially president and first tiger of Comicraft. That's, that's his actual official title in the business. I have even more respect for both Starkings and Comicraft now. Oh yeah, no, he's, he's, he's a good dude. Well, anyway, um, in addition to his excellent background with, you know, Jism T. Cock, um, Adam Polina will be the artist on X-Force for actually many years at this point. His style is very much his style. He reminds me a little bit of, I don't know, maybe like a 90s version of Brett Blevins with that kind of uh, exaggeration of body language and facial features where, you know, if a character has big ears, they have bigger ears. If they have sharp cheekbones, they have sharper cheekbones, that sort of thing. He also reminds me a little of Tony Harris's uh, pencils on Starman from back in the 90s, but that might just be the inking style. And Ex Machina a little bit, actually. The Harris comparison was the one that really, really struck me once you'd made it. Um, to the point that I, I would be really curious as to how and to what extent Polina photo references, because that's the source of so much of Harris's distinctive style. Uh, yeah, yeah, I kind of would wonder about that as well. So Polina's art is very different than we've seen on X-Force before. Specifically, it's almost it's almost romance comics-y in a way. Like, yeah, he draws completely competent action scenes, but the level of overexpressiveness reminds me of those old romance comics. And that's kind of indicative of the direction that X-Force is going to take at this point. Because under Jeff Loeb's writing, we're going to go from the, you know, extreme explosions and punching and pecks and guns nest that was X-Force to something more soap opera-ish, more character-focused. Whether or not that works, I'm not really sure yet. Because as I've mentioned before... I haven't really read very much from this era. This was right after I stopped reading comics, so I'm kind of discovering this as we go a lot of the time. Something I really appreciate about Polina's art is that he draws a really wide range of faces and bodies. Yeah, even even within the fairly narrow young and fit range that he's he's pulling from for X-Force. And specifically that he draws female faces that aren't necessarily very narrowly pretty um i really like his boom boom i do too yeah she looks pretty different than she has in the past but honestly boom boom's appearance changes drastically in pretty much every era so i'm fine with that it does yeah and one of the things that's consistent in at least her descriptions of herself is that she's not conventionally pretty and that's something every artist has pretty much ignored up until polina and his his boom boom i think is is still pretty but she she's She's not, like, generic comic book pretty, which is really nice. It totally is, yeah. Overall, I like Polina's takes on most characters, even if I'm not so sure about the new looks a lot of these characters have, but we'll get to that later. In the meantime, this is our first X-Force episode since the near-endless Age of Apocalypse, so let's check in with what happened previously on X-Force. Once upon a time, the X-Men were, at least apparently, dead in space, so Professor Xavier recruited a bunch of teenagers to form a new team called the New Mutants. Well, technically, it was an evil alien who'd taken over Professor X's body, but that part's not relevant, so let's not worry about that for now. Anyway, as I mentioned, that team was the New Mutants, and they were great, and so was their series. But when Professor X went back to space himself and left Magneto to take over both the school and the New Mutants, the kids felt less and less at home. And eventually took off for good, finding a new mentor in a grizzled mass of guns and muscle from the future who went by the name of Cable. After a number of changes to their roster, the New Mutants became X-Force, the most extreme teens. And aliens. And catgirls. And shapeshifters. And cyborgs. 
and continuity black holes, because as it turned out, Cable was actually uh, Nathan Christopher Summers, Cyclops and Madeline Pryor's kid who'd gotten sent into the far, far future and raised there. Anyway, X-Force was the most extreme, all of those things, of all. They were mutant superheroes like the X-Men, but with way more yelling and explosions. They'd just settled into a brand new headquarters and had found their nemesis Rainfire was really their long-lost ally Sunspot in disguise when the world ended, and immediately after the world unended, their new headquarters blew up. And with it, most of their pre-Age of Apocalypse status quo. So what's next? Uh, that would be X-Force number 44. Appropriately titled, Already in Progress. This is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Farmer, colored by Marie Javins and Electric Cran, and lettered by Chris Eleopoulos. And the cover is a concept that we've seen many, many times. It's an homage mostly to Uncanny X-Men number 138, where Cyclops is sadly walking away from the gathered team in the background. We've also seen that with Uncanny X-Men number 151 with Kitty, New Mutants number 99 with Sunspot, Wolverine number 65 with Wolverine, Uncanny X-Men 381 with Jubilee, X-Men number 57 with Xavier, and Gen Next number 1 with the whole team, and lastly Ultimate X-Men number 80 with Wolverine again. I wonder if if this is the most often echoed X-Men cover. I feel like that iconic Days of Future Past cover with Wolverine and Kitty in front of the Wanted poster is probably more referenced, but not in X-Men, just in other comics. Hmm. I would be interested in, in getting an actual count of that. Internet, if you're really bored and want to make a spreadsheet, uh, please do that. Before we get much further, though, it occurred to us that this may be a lot of people's first X-Force episode in a while, and for people who did start with the Age of Apocalypse coverage, their first X-Force episode, period. Whoa. So let's do a bit of a robot roll call. Jay, who is on X-Force? Well, leading the team, sort of running the team in a Professor Xavier role, is Cable. This is Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, or Nathan Ascani, or just plain Cable. Um, his identity have, has only relatively recently been confirmed as, as, as I mentioned earlier, the time-lost kid of Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor. He's old, he's grizzled, he's angry, and he grew up in the future. We also have the co-leader of the team, Domino. You may be familiar with Domino from the recent Gail Simone series or from Deadpool 2 where she's kind of different but still awesome. The short version is she has luck powers, she's the wine mom of the team, and she's rad as hell. She and Cable take a lot of baths together. Technically, that impressive bath they took together back in the day, that wasn't Domino, that was Copycat pretending to be Domino. Yeah, but years later, it's firmly established within canon that Cable and Domino specifically took a lot of baths together. You know, the family that uh, gets clean together stays together? That doesn't rhyme at all. Who else do we have? All right, so leading in the field is Cannonball. This is Sam Guthrie, who started out as the nicest kid on the New Mutants and is now the nicest kid in X-Force, which admittedly has a somewhat lower bar for niceness, but he's still an upstanding young, fe young fella. He can basically explode from his butt and fly around real fast. Also from the original New Mutants is Sunspot. He was missing for a while, now he's back, we'll get to that. But he is Roberto da Costa, and he can absorb solar energy to turn into a super strong, silhouette-looking form, and we like him a great deal. And he likes Magnum P.I. a great deal. You will never love anything as much as Roberto da Costa loves Magnum P.I. You know who else we love? We love Tabitha Smith. She's going by Boomer these days, but we tend to slip and call her Boom Boom, which was her original and far superior codename. Boom Boom made her first appearance in Secret Wars 2, running around with the Beyonder, and later migrated to the pages of X-Factor, where after a brief stint working for the villainous Vanisher, she was eventually kinda sorta adopted by the team alongside their other ward, Richter, um, and Rusty and Skids, and, you know, whoever else happened to be hanging around at the time. She has time bomb powers, and uses them very irresponsibly. We also have Warpath. Warpath is the younger brother of Thunderbird, an, a Native American X-Man who died on the team's first 70s-era mission. Warpath, for a while, was a member of the New Mutants' equal opposites, their rival team, the Hellions. Now he's on X-Force, he's very strong, he's very fast, and he has a great big crush on Siren. 
Siren Teresa Rourke is the daughter of Sean Cassidy, that's Banshee, and she's pretty much got the same power set, which is to say she can scream real loud and use that to fly. She's also an alcoholic currently in recovery. And then we have Shatterstar. He has beautiful long hair, a sword with two parallel blades. He comes from the Mojoverse, a dimension obsessed with media run by a gigantic megalomaniac. And his superpower is that he can cut things in thirds very efficiently. Actually, he can yell and turn it into lasers. So kind of like Dazzler, but uh, less versatile. Anyway, he's great, and we love him. And who else loves him is... Julio Richter. That's Richter spelled slightly differently as a codename, because, you know, why not? Like Boom Boom, his first X-Team was X-Factor, who found a young Richter being held hostage by the right, led by Cameron Hodge. You can find out all about that in, like, the first three quarters of our X-Factor coverage. There was a lot. Anyway, he can control seismic stuff, he can create earthquakes, and he is super in love with Shatterstar. And it's going to be totally hot, and it's going to freak Strong Guy totally out. So, all of that established, let's talk about some comics. So, this whole issue is written in the form of Cannonball's letter home to Ma Guthrie, which I think is great. You know, he's going to be leaving the team in this issue, as we've alluded to in our next time from last episode. And so that works for him to be the point of view character. You know what's less great about it? The fact that he is for some reason writing a letter in his extremely phonetic southern dialect? Yeah, yeah, that that's a problem. For instance, Dear Ma, sometimes, late at night, when I'm home all alone, I wonder how things would have turned out if I never left Kentucky. Now... Ah is spelled A-H here, by the way, in this letter that he's presumably writing. Never met Charles Xavier, or Magneto, or Cable. I was here in the mansion for the first day of the New Mutants, and now I was afraid I'd come back here for the last day of X-Force. So here's the thing. Yes, Sam is from the Appalachian part of the United States. Yes, he's from an economically depressed area. But Sam of the original New Mutants is probably the most academically inclined and best educated of all of them. He's like hyper literate. So I do not buy this unless I did come up with a possible explanation, Jay. What if Sam is taking advantage of the science fiction technology he loves so much since he grew up on sci-fi books and just dictating into the Shi'ar computer and the Shi'ar computer is deciding to phonetically write down exactly what he's saying with his accent? What if Sam is mindfully protesting against prescriptive linguistics and spelling and um, yeah, yeah, in, in sheer defiance of the notion that he should be code-switching in order to better fit in with the rest of the X-Men? I don't know. I kind of feel like Sam is way too much of a rule follower for that. I guess. No, I. this is... I, I, I don't have a problem with Sam's accent, but yeah, having it having having it written out phonetically in what's supposed to be a letter is is a really weird move. It's it's not a place that makes much sense. And you could you could keep the you could keep the diction. You could keep, you know, the word choice and some of the the dialect specific grammar, but having those spellings is just it's it's not a good narrative choice. Nah. Uh, but anyway, speaking of that narrative, I suppose we should actually talk about the plot instead of just nitpicking this one thing. So X-Force is waiting outside Xavier's office. That's what Sam is referring to, because Cable is in that office talking to Professor X about the future of X-Force. It's very much the feel of the kids waiting for the grown-ups to figure out what they're going to do. And part of that is X-Force themselves, they don't know what the future of the team is going to be because... They used to be the New Mutants. Well, okay, like a couple of them used to be the New Mutants. The Junior X-Men team. And now there's Generation X. Now there's a, a replacement Junior X-Men team. And so where does that leave X-Force? I mean, I sort of think of X-Force as more of the the Black Ops X-Men team, or the at least Explodey Ops X-Men team. Completely agree. And uh, its transition away from that is going to be a major theme of this arc, and to an extent, this run. Um, speaking of X-Force, so Sunspot is indeed back. Apparently, somewhere between the last issue of X-Force and X-Men Prime, he got de-rain-fired. He got, like, you know, turned from the supervillain that he was into just regular old Sunspot. 
we don't get to find out what happened there. We will find out more later, but this just strikes me as a cruel tease. Like, here was this giant mystery that was this cliffhanger right before the Age of Apocalypse, and we come back and everyone's like, oh yeah, that got taken care of. Okay, moving on. A lot of this specific era feels like that. Like, they've got this big new event they're headed towards, and they're just kind of brushing everything else away. Yeah, yeah, it really does feel like the road to Onslaught is priority one and everything else is a, a distant second. Uh, it's not even the road to Onslaught at this point. It's Onslaught is here. He's just not actually showing up yet. It's not the Onslaught event. It's getting into it's always already Inferno territory, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Siren's also gone, and Cable and Domino are kind of doing to the team what the plot is doing to us with Sunspot. They're not telling the team where the hell Siren went, and every time anybody, specifically Warpath, who has a giant crush on Siren, asks, uh, they get nothing in return. Oh well. <laughs> so of course, Warpath is is looking everywhere. He calls Banshee, who also doesn't know where, um, where she is, and... Everyone, of course, has to co comment on everyone's new appearances. Warpa Warpath at this point is sporting a buzz cut, which is going to turn into an undercut by the, the third issue we're talking about. But for now, it's it's a buzz cut. It's there. I am against this. Part of that is because I really enjoy long hair and masculine presenting people, and Warpath had a pretty sweet 90s mullet for a long time. Um, part of it, I don't know. I don't really know what's happening with Warpath here. Like, Cable's training the new team with a, a bunch of new stuff. He's trying to get them to unlock their powers, and so he gives Warpath a bow staff, which I, I, I don't know why. It feels like Jeff Loeb has a very specific goal for Warpath that we just haven't really learned what the hell it is yet. Because Warpath before was this sort of angry young man, also a hyper-competent veteran superhero who is really learning to connect with people and trust people, and... Now he's guy with buzz cut and bow staff. Well, and the decision to cut his hair and also strip away pretty much all of the admittedly dubiously accurate but still indigenous cultural markers of his costume feels like it should have been a bigger character choice than it was. Yeah, yeah, completely agreed. Well, anyway... While the kids wait, they are playing around with a danger room, and inside they find Sabretooth, looking all blissed out among this cartoony forest, and there's a cottage, and there are mushrooms, and there are small woodland creatures, and everything is hypersaturated bright colors. It reminds me a lot of the way Chris Spicello draws Generation X, that level of cartoony exaggeration. It reminds me specifically of Rain's fantasies back in um, New Mutants. Oh, yeah, like uh, Wolfsbane's fairy tale from way back mm -hmm. in the day. But what I think both of those are supposed to evoke is, in this specific context, the Disney Snow White movie. You're totally right, yeah. Because Sabretooth, right before the Age of Apocalypse in Wolverine number 90, got sort of uh, claw-bottomized by Logan, if you will. Logan popped his claws right through Sabretooth's brain. And apparently, that has led Sabretooth into regressing into this super peaceful, chill, childlike state, and they're just sort of keeping him in happy Disney surroundings in the danger room to perpetuate and prolong that. Mixed feelings about that. In fact, I have mostly negative feelings about that. It's pretty weird, yeah. Uh, but it will be quite relevant to where we go from here. As Boomer is feeling more and more sympathy toward this big, hairy Disney princess guy, uh, Cable telepathically calls the whole team to the principal's office. I mean, Xavier's office. Which is where, as you'll recall the big decisions tend to happen, and that's no less the case here. So Cable gives a big preamble about reevaluating their goals, about the changing future, and, you know, Sam rushes up to, to say that, you know, if anything's gone wrong, it's clearly his fault, and as it turns out that, no, nothing is Sam's fault, nothing has gone wrong, but they're going to be living in the mansion, um, they're going to be working more closely with the X-Men, they're going to get team uniforms, um, they're, they're, some of them are going to get some new weapons. Sam does not get a uniform and he's, he's initially, you know, scared and Cable pulls a whole, well, I don't have a place for you anymore, but it turns out that no, actually Sam has graduated. He's going to be joining the X-Men. Alluding back to what you said earlier, Jay, this is weird because 
X-Force isn't the farm team for the X-Men. They haven't been that since they were the New Mutants, and even then it was arguable whether that was supposed to be the case. Like, I remember that open-hand, closed-fist uh, argument that Cannonball had with Professor Xavier around Executioner's Song, talking about how both approaches are necessary and valid, and it seems so weird for Sam not only to be graduated to the X-Men by Cable, but for him to be so excited about this. Like, so much of Sam's journey has been creating his own identity that stood independent of his various mentor figures and father figures. And so for him just to be, yay, I get to be a real superhero is real weird. Yeah, this feels like the personnel equivalent of Warpath's bow staff. Kind of, yeah. So... That's happening. Cannonball, previously the field leader of X-Force, for a time the straight-up leader of X-Force, is now on the X-Men. And that's going to be the case for years and years and years. He is off X-Force for a good long time. But we've also gotten a new team member on X-Force. Who's joining the roster? Now on X-Force, we have Caliban. You remember Caliban, he is a Morlock, he's one of the mutants who had hid underground from a world that hated and feared them, because, you know, they all look kind of funny. Uh, after the Morlocks were slaughtered by Mr. Sinister's Marauders in the Mutant Massacre, Caliban voluntarily became Apocalypse's new horseman of death. He got super beefy, and super sharp, and super murdery, and tried repeatedly to kill Sabretooth, who was the main marauder that had slaughtered the Morlocks. Well, in Caliban's eyes, anyway. And Caliban's going to be on the team for ages and ages. Just like Cannonball's gone for a long-ass time, Caliban's here for a long-ass time. He's a little different than we've seen him, though. When we first met Caliban, way back in the day in Uncanny X-Men, and then for a longer period in X-Factor, he had this sort of talking about himself in the third person, simple, naive, fearful kind of affect. But as soon as Apocalypse souped him up into the Horseman of Death, Caliban was quite articulate and intelligent and observant, and uh, he had, like, I guess in role-playing terms, he had a high wits score. And suddenly, Caliban is just acting like a great big child, even more so than before his transformation. And I looked into this. I looked at Caliban's various appearances, and he goes from that one X-Men annual where he fought Sabretooth and was speaking extremely er eruditely to his appearance in Jeff Loeb's Cable, the same writer as this, where all of a sudden he's back to being this sort of gentle giant with big old claws figure. I don't know why. I think that may be explained later. Something about his intelligence decreasing as he breaks away further from Apocalypse, sort of like a mutant ancient Egyptian high-tech flowers for Algernon. That's an uncomfortable metaphor. I, I wonder if that's deliberate or if that was something that was pulled in as a retcon to justify consistent mischaracterization or consistent contextual mischaracterization. Honestly, I don't know, but Loeb's in charge of X-Force for a long time, also in charge of Cable uh, for a while, where Caliban showed up, so that's just the way things are right now. Alas. Okay, so that's that's two of the changes to the, the lineup, but um, there is there is one shake-up left. <laughs> shake-up is a great way of putting it, because after threatening to a number of times, do and doing so at least once, Julio Esteban Richter, a.k.a. Richter is finally quitting X-Force. And what convinces him to do so is kind of weird. It's specifically that Cable is talking about using his telepathy more to coordinate the team. And Richter doesn't want no old cyborg in his head. But that's weird, because while Richter certainly used to have some stuff against Cable, he used to think that Cable had killed his father, turned out to be Strife, Cable's clone, obviously. Now all of a sudden Richter's all mistrustful again? I don't know, it feels kind of like a regression. It's weird. And I know every time you get a new writer, you're going to see character changes. I'm okay with that. But it just seems like some of the character changes in this arc in particular are kind of a step directly 180 degrees backward for certain of those characters. And this is an example of that, I think. I wonder very cynically whether this was a deliberate move to sort of wedge Richter and Shatterstar further apart, given the direction that their relationship was very clearly going. I don't know. I mean, that relationship is definitely referenced, as Shatterstar says. Richter, Julio, there has to be a way to work this out. Star, I gotta think it through. Maybe if I take some time off, get away. I haven't been home in a long time. My family needs me.
I need you, Julio. You're my best, my only friend. And I'll always be there for you, amigo. As roommates and pals. Yeah. Well, it's okay. They'll get to be super queer, like, uh, way later. But still, it is coming, eventually. <sighs> Meanwhile, though, because we are easily distracted, fashion. Fashion! The team, in addition to training in all sorts of new directions, like buzz cuts and bow staffs, is getting a set of coordinated uniforms. And this is interesting, because the last time X-Force had uniforms... They weren't X-Force. They were the New Mutants, and that was right before they decided to leave the Xavier School and strike out on their own in individual costumes. So being back at the Xavier School, back in coordinated colors and costume styles, I don't know, that seems appropriate. Whether I agree with it or not, it definitely fits. The outfits also seem to fit. It does, though, once again, feel regressive. It, it feels like something is being yanked back to the status quo rather than evolving in, an, in a logical direction. I don't know. I think that purple and yellow color scheme is definitely an evolution of some sort. I actually really like it. Like, I always enjoy when team colors are uncommon ones. Like, you know, heroes are all about primary colors here and there. Villains are all about secondary colors. And so having a primary and a secondary, I think, actually fits X-Force really well because they've always been this morally gray team. Or, I guess, morally yellow and purple. Those are the colors of bruises, too. They're wearing very stylish bruises. Very extreme and stylish bruises. They're also complementary colors, and I have no idea whether that means anything or not. Uh, it means if you washed all their laundry together, it would just turn brown. Do unstable molecules run in the wash? I would assume that they're better than that. Reed Richards would know, or rather Sue Storm would know, because I can't imagine Reed actually does his own laundry. Do you think maybe they just throw him in the wash? I mean, I can totally picture it, so I'm gonna say, yes. Yes, they do. He'd get all tangled, the agitator. He totally would. Uh, but okay, these costumes. So, it's the same color scheme for everybody, but everyone has their own unique uh, elements in those costumes. So, like, Warpath has chaps, for instance. But what I really want to talk about is the fact that instead of wearing a shirt, Sunspot is just wearing a double bandolier and corresponding arm straps made entirely of pouches. It's hard to see how many because we never see, you know, both sides of him at once. But he's easily got somewhere between 30 and 50 pouches just on his upper torso. What does he keep in all of those, Jay? Oh, definitely Definitely novelty spy tools, like disappearing ink, magnifying glasses. Secret decoder rings, x-ray specs, possibly those glasses with the nose and mustache attached, which would fit the fact that he wants to look like Magnum P.I., and he can't grow a mustache, canonically. My god, it all makes so much sense. What also kind of makes sense is X-Force number 45, Under One Roof. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Pennington, colored by Marie Javins and Electric Cran, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Mark Pennington has an extremely appropriate name for an inker. That's really true. Although, well, I guess it would be Mark Pencilington if he was the penciler. Anyway, this issue opens with Boom Boom. She apparently has a nightly ritual. In her bathrobe and bunny slippers and teddy bear, she brings a bowl of milk to the danger room to give to... Sabretooth, which seems kind of weird initially because Boom Boom certainly does has a, have a hidden soft side, but she's also easily freaked out and grossed out by basically uh, anybody, so Sabretooth seems like an odd choice. What do you think? I think the narration justifies this later as her specifically looking for validation from men who are capable of hurting her. Yeah, yeah, that is where it's gonna go. Uh, right now it seems weird. I guess that fits Boom Boom's background and history, it's certainly ground one has to be careful treading when talking about abuse and its consequences, because Boom Boom was absolutely abused by her father. Like, that's one of the first things we learn about Boom Boom way back when she first appears in Secret Wars 2. I think Jeff Loeb does a decent job of addressing that, but we'll talk a little bit more about that as that plotline progresses. For now, the plotline doesn't progress, because as soon as Boom Boom gets to the danger room... Caliban is in there, attempting to murder the hell out of the mostly docile, mostly confused Sabretooth. Everyone who didn't see that one coming, raise your hand. 
of course Caliban wants to kill Sabretooth even more than Wolverine did. I mean, Wolverine just put a claw through Sabretooth's brain. Caliban's trying to tear Sabretooth apart. And this is consistent. Like, everything we've seen of Caliban since he turned into the Horseman of Death was motivated by him wanting to get revenge on Sabretooth in particular and the Marauders in general. Cable takes this moment to show up in his underwear and subtly, for him, end the fight. He programs the mostly trashed danger room to turn the holographic environment that the two are in into the Morlock tunnels during the mutant massacre. And he totally guilt trips Caliban, saying, Okay, you remember how the Morlocks were all helpless when Sabretooth slaughtered them? Well, now Sabretooth's helpless. Do you want to be like Sabretooth and slaughter someone helpless? Which, I mean, dude, Cable, like... I agree that maybe murder isn't a great choice, but come on, Caliban's pain is real. Oh, I read that very differently. I read Cap- the point that Cable was making um, as being that Sabretooth absolutely deserved to die for what he did, but the Sabretooth who was here now for all practical purposes wasn't the Sabretooth that Caliban had every reason to kill. You know, that's a really good point, and I think looking at it that way, I kind of agree with Cable. This one's tricky, though, because the Sabretooth we see in X-Force, it's very clear that he's intended to be uh, totally legit, totally honest about, you know, having his mind having mostly regressed, being innocent, childlike, peaceful, etc. But if you look over at Larry Hama's Wolverine at the same time, like the Wolverine solo series, in that we see a Sabretooth who's just trying to play everyone. So which is canonical? I don't know, I think both were kind of intended to be canonical, so it depends on which book you're reading, I guess. Even in here, it's unclear how much of what he's doing is pretense. It's obvious that there's some, but it's also obvious that he's he's getting his faculties back much, much faster than he's letting on. Yeah, yeah, there is that. But in the meantime, Caliban does what Cable says. He backs off. Well, everybody cleans up, and the team goes back to the training that Cable's been talking so much about. Sunspot and his pouches are flying around, Warpath is hitting Caliban with his bow staff. And as all this is happening, Xavier's talking to Cable about Cable's own training, because something that's becoming very clear is that Cable's obsession with improving his own telepathy, his own psychic powers, that had really gone by the wayside since he'd been using them for so many years just to keep his cyborgness in check— Cable's doing that in ways that Xavier's not so comfortable with. As Cable's been focusing so hard on, the team trains and trains and trains. Sunspot, I think, is mostly training at flying around with all of those pouches. They cannot be aerodynamic. Because they have a mission coming up. Boom Boom, however, isn't really up for this mission. Basically, she's just straight up faking sick, like you would at school, so that she can spend more time with Cannonball now that they're not on the same team. Cable totally sees right through her, but he lets it go. As he lets Shatterstar stay here because Shatterstar broke his ribs off in Cable's solo series. So, right now, we have a very, very small team. We just have Cable, Sunspot, Warpath, and Caliban. And that's it. And they are going to check on a research outpost. This is a place that's that's somehow part of Xavier's mutant underground. Um, this is a tracking station, and it's gone offline completely. Xavier can't reach it using Cerebro, he can't reach it using conventional communications. So X-Force is supposed to go and see what happened. So they fly in in their pack rat, which stands for a whole lot of technological sounding words, and find a gigantic goddamn crater with a bunch of corpses and also a beefy winged beardo man. That is Mimic. Now, since the Silver Age, Mimic has popped up in a couple of ex-adjacent Hulk stories. Um, For a while, he was on the X-Men, I think for a total of like two or three issues. He went to college with Jean Grey briefly. He shows up, gets in fights with people. He's an on-again-off-again hero slash villain slash whatever. That's going to continue for a while. As far as his powers, he can, like we talked about in the cold open, absorb the powers of any, maybe mutants, maybe superpowered beings in general, it varies, that he's near. Here, we see him with all of the original five X-Men's powers, so, you know, wings and agility and strength and optic blasts and telepathy and telekinesis and ice stuff. And that's weird, because I don't think he was around the X-Men for long enough to get those, but eh, I don't know. 
So absorb is a bit of a misnomer because he doesn't take away the powers. It's it's not like Rogue where where she can she can effectively depower someone while she herself gets the, their powers. Um, Mimic duplicates powers, and setting things up such that he could keep powers he duplicated was an ongoing plot point. Like it's something that he was he was trying to do for a very long time. So it's not like it's completely unprecedented in relation to his character. But it's never really adequately explained. Still, at this point, he's got all of the original X-Men's powers. And he, as we'll find out, has been up at this research base because he lost control of those powers. He accidentally killed a few people, and he was up here trying to get control again and generally staying away from civilization. However, remember how earlier on I said that at this point pretty much everything is actually Onslaught? This is Onslaught. We don't find out that that's the case here, but yes, this will turn out to be an Onslaught thing, of course. And as is often the case with Onslaught, or I guess in comic books in general, that means it's time for an understanding-based superhero fight, which takes us to X-Force number 46, Behind Closed Doors, and X-Force number 47, Breakout. And these have the same creative teams as previous. So, Onslaught had mind-controlled people to wreck the base, Cal Rankin Mimic thinks X-Force did it, X-Force thinks Mimic did it, everyone fights. And at first, Mimic is just trying to get away from them, to keep from hurting them, and then to keep them from hurting him, although that quickly turns into a kill them before they kill me situation. Unfortunately for everyone involved, but especially for Mimic, Cable has had Sunspot swooping around overhead and warned him not to come down, But Sunspot sees the fight starting to end and assumes that it's because Mimic's doing something dastardly because he's Sunspot and he sometimes doesn't really quite understand what's going on. And so he swoops in to carry Mimic off. Now remember, this is Sunspot with his powers amped way up. Recently learned to fly Sunspot. And remember what Mimic's powers are. Mimic's powers that he can't currently control. Right, so Mimic absorbs a bunch of energy, powers way up, and everybody explodes. Well, Sunspot and Mimic explode. There's a kind of ridiculous pseudoscientific explanation for it that I'm not even going to dignify by quoting. But once the rest of the team gets to the crater, Sunspot is there and there's no sign of Mimic anywhere. I gotta say, I like Polina in general, but in this issue and in this scene in particular, I cannot handle the way he draws Cable's face and hair. He just looks like a miscolored cannonball. Of all the characters that should never look like each other. I mean, okay, Cable's relatively consistent. He's always an enormous beefy dude with silver or white hair. Cannonball, though, he's been all over the place in his portrayal across his history. Do you remember when he was the tall, lanky kid with a dumb haircut and great big ears back when he first appeared? He doesn't look anything like that anymore. Some things have remained consistent, though, um, and especially recently consistent. So he's 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 got a fairly long, narrow face, and in in at least the the X Force days, he's got floppy bangs and. Now Cable suddenly has both of those, and in fact, there's there's one panel on the pack rat where he's miscolored as Cannonball, but I just I just have a lot of trouble with it because Cable should look like he's you know stacked Legos. He's shaped like a Lego guy. He should look like you took three beefy men and just sort of squish them together like Play-Doh. With the mission accomplished, everyone heads back for a gentle crash landing at the Xavier School. By the end of the trip, they're physically just using their powers to hold their ship together. I really, really enjoy that, and I think it fits X-Force pretty well. Like, we see all the punching and intimidation and explosions, but I enjoy that we get to see the aftermath of that level of carnage, which is just almost slapstick. They're scrappy, man. They are scrappy, and their ship is scrap. So, back at the mansion, Boom Boom once again goes out to bring Sabretooth milk. It's even more cartoony this time. His environment is, is has gone from basically Snow White to basically Lion King, and as Boom Boom leaves, it becomes clear that he can, in fact, speak, and that he remembers at least some. How much he's hiding remains unclear, but it's implied that it's it's more than he's letting on. 
It's definitely implied that way to Wolverine, because as Boom Boom sleeps, he just randomly shows up in her bedroom like his Edward freaking Cullen. Inappropriate, Logan. Wildly, wildly inappropriate. Now, Wolverine and Boom Boom actually have hung out a little bit. I recently discovered a comic I hadn't read before called Evolution. It's a Wolverine one-shot, co-starring Boom what? Boom. What? That's an amazing title. Isn't it? Uh, it's written by Anne Nesenti, which tells us a lot right there, which is that it's going to be certainly at least somewhat off the wall. But basically, Wolverine and Boom Boom end up teaming up against a Luddite cult of sexists, partially because Boom Boom can't stay out of malls. It's real weird. It has a lot to say about technology and gender and spirituality, and I feel like I'd have to read it about four more times to have more of an opinion than that. That sounds amazing, and I feel like you're describing our next winter special. Maybe. Just that that's that's Christmas, is is Wolverine and Boom Boom at the mall. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? So the book heavily, heavily implies that what's going on here with with Boomer hanging out with Sabretooth and, and trying to get his, his approval and his affection is is basically her issues with her father going into high gear. At one point, she tries to call him during this and ends up hanging up when he picks up. Yeah, Boom Boom's father is abusive, um, possibly severely abusive. I don't think it's ever gone into a lot of detail, but that was the first context in which we met Boom Boom way back in Secret Wars was her running away from home. And it's kind of weird because we haven't really seen any direct evidence of that bearing down on her and causing maybe some of her her personality elements. It makes sense. It just feels like it's coming a little bit out of nowhere without much buildup in the intervening decades, you know? Yeah, well, she she talks about it sort of reflecting her history and the, the people she latched onto. And you can definitely see that in The Beyonder, at least. Oh, man. You do not want to take on The Beyonder as a father figure. He doesn't even know how to poop. And I guess maybe kind of the Vanisher, who we can assume probably knows how to poop. I think he's like uh, one of J.K. Rowling's wizards and that he just craps on the floor and then vanishes it away. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to be mad at J.K. Rowling, uh, but that is certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's the rampant transphobia and the bad idea. Right? Speaking of potentially bad ideas... We finally find out now where Siren got off to, because like we mentioned earlier, she's been missing and none of the team knows where she is, except Cable, who ain't talking. Right. She is in the Wiseman Institute. This is near Rutland, Vermont, a fictional town where Marvel and DC have both set stories in the 70s, featuring actual writers and artists as background characters. So as far as I can tell, she's, she's what, in the Amalgamverse for the weekend? Kind of. Yeah, I first remember hearing about the whole Rutland thing on Tighten Up the Defense, um, uh, run by a friend of the show, Hub and Corey, because um, they, of course, cover both a Marvel and a DC book in their podcast. And yeah, it sounds like the creators were just like, okay, I know we're in rival companies, but screw it. Let's just make like a Halloween town and have weird stuff happen there and have all of the writers and artists as characters who like have their cars smashed or whatever. I love the let's do this. It would be fun projects. I mean, I think that's that's a lot of what you see in the X-Men Teen Titans crossover, too. Yeah. Oh, that's delightful. So Siren hacks into the computers at the Wiseman Institute, and she discovers a couple of things. First, that there's a 10-year-old there named Jeremy Stevens who's institutionalized indefinitely. It seems like he's one of the main people she's interested in, but in the background, we see a very familiar face with the name Benjamin Russell. And I gotta say, nobody has a top knot and epic sideburns except for Shatterstar that I know of. So could Benjamin Russell be Shatterstar? Continuity certainly has some opinions about that, and oh, that's gonna be a thing. Yeah, the answer is it's complicated. And not all that coherent. So it turns out that Rachel Wiseman, who runs the Institute, is supposed to be part of Xavier's Mutant Underground, but when Siren brings it up with her, Dr. Wiseman claims Siren is delusional and has her drugged. Xavier isn't answering her secret radio, so Siren ultimately calls up the only person she can think of for help. That's Spider-Man. You know, the merc with a mouth, the most popular character of the 90s, just had a couple of movies that had Cable and Domino and Juggernaut in them. That's right, Spider-Man. Where's a lot of red and black? 
<laughs> Freaking Deadpool. Okay, it's Deadpool. Now, Siren and Deadpool know each other. They actually have kind of a flirtatious thing going on, and they will for a while. They were hanging out in one of Deadpool's miniseries recently. We didn't cover it. You don't need to know much, just that they're buds. There are mutual semi-kinda crushes in one or more directions. So Deadpool shows up disguised as a surgeon, and they start to break out, and they get as far as Wiseman's control room when, or as, as far as Wiseman herself. And Wiseman tries to stop them, but she's clearly really confused. And it becomes increasingly clear that someone is mind-controlling her, and then that that someone is creepy little Jeremy Stevens, who somehow knocks Deadpool out and then scolds Dr. Wiseman like she's a child. Jeremy Stevens is... Games Master, the Omnipath who was behind the game of the Upstarts, who were a bunch of little shits who were trying to kill a whole bunch of mutants for a contest where the rules seemed to change every time the plotline came up. The Games Master used to keep himself isolated from humanity as best he could. He used to try to amuse himself through these games because he's constantly reading every mind on the planet, and that was making him very unhappy. Now we get a rewrite that honestly is closer to the original conception of Mr. Sinister as this villain being telepathically created by a little kid in an orphanage. We're going to get to more of this later in a couple of X-Force arcs. I honestly haven't read that arc before, so I don't know if it's any good or if it's bad, but yep, it's the Games Master. It turns out he's really a little kid who's been mind-controlling everyone in a stereotypical asylum. Great. Yeah, and and there's a whole sidebar of a rant here on depictions of of mental health care and of mental illness in com in comics. You can see a lot of that in in a far prior episode where we talked to Dr. Andrea Letamendi about it. But let me let me just summarize it as nope. Yeah, basically that. Well, Siren shows up all hale and hearty back at the Xavier Institute, X Force's current headquarters, saying, "Yeah, turns out false alarm. Everything's fine." She doesn't seem at all concerned by these revelations and this chaos from what happened before. Clearly, telepathy is at work, especially as we realize that Deadpool is still being held captive at the Wiseman Institute. We'll be following up on the Wiseman Institute a few arcs later. So this is, this is I guess, the sort of semi-relaunch of X-Force post-Age of Apocalypse. What do you think? It's a very, very different book. Like... One of my initial complaints with X-Force when Liefeld was the driving force behind it was that it was so focused on action and explosions and violence and cool shit that we didn't get enough character work. And now character work is most of what we get, and I like that, but at the same time, it almost feels like it's too far in that direction. X-Force doesn't really feel like the X-Force that I'm used to. They just feel like another branch of the X-Men, and we already have the X-Men. I do know that as this era continues, they're going to go into what's often referred to as the road trip era, which will differentiate what their book is about a little bit more uh, from X-Men than it is right now. I also haven't really read much of that. Like, I am in mostly uncharted territory here. What about you? We talked about this a little bit earlier in the episode, but my main issue with this arc is shifting X-Force from something that exists tangential to the side of the X-Men, to suddenly becoming the youth feeder team for the X-Men. I don't think that's consistent with what we've seen of X-Force, and I really don't think it's consistent with what we've seen of the X-Men for this era. And seeing Cable just sort of blithely go along with it is weird, man. It doesn't feel like the team evolving or changing, which I'm all for. It feels like the team being written by someone who wasn't entirely familiar with its prior role in continuity, or needing to be retconned to fit a specific story role. And we're going to see a lot of that. Like, we'll be talking about X-Factor, I believe, next episode. And it's a similar thing there. It's a new creative team, the lineup has shifted a lot, and the, the feel of the book changes a great deal. I don't know how much of that was editorially mandated or how much was just the writer saying, this is what I want to do, but it's a great big shift. Like, honestly, coming back from the Age of Apocalypse, I think, is one of the bigger shifts we've seen, period. Maybe uh, almost on par with when, you know, Claremont and Simonson left in the early 90s. In some ways, it's more jarring, because there at least we saw transitions, and here we've just got this gap of several months, during which not only the setting, you know, and the details and two months worth of other stuff have changed, but the entire dynamics of the setup have changed. But you know what this reminds me most of is the modern era, because we have books being relaunched constantly in the modern era with new creative teams and new lineups, and that's not a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a thing. 
But often you can see that level of just abrupt, jarring transition. And sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it's part of the mystery, like with House of X and Powers of Ten. And other times you feel like you blinked and then when you opened your eyes, it was five years later. I mean, I think what we are seeing here is the beginning of the official auteur era, where you have one or two people as, as the central masterminds of the X line as it's being built around and centered around crossover events. Yeah, so I'm honestly really excited to cover it. I mean, as much as I complain about the Onslaught era, this is a really fascinating time, and it's one that I don't think either of us is super, super familiar with, so it's going to be really cool to check all this out. It's going to be interesting, too, to sort of watch the evolution of the modern X-Men, if not as a team or as a narrative structure, then as, to some extent, a marketing machine. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we should make an Ecstatics reference here, but we haven't covered them at all, so that would be confusing for a lot of people. Suffice to say, Ecstatics, as a book and as a team, are relevant. Well, more relevant and more specifically, we're seeing the X-Men's role in Marvel's lineup really change and evolve. They've got the cartoon now, they're very visible as a media property, but Marvel's also going through a lot of business and corporate and financial upheaval during these years. And the entire comics direct market is really shifting a lot at the same time along with it and, you know, pulling it with it. And the way that that's going to affect the pacing, the structure, the composition of comics and of X-Men is, is really interesting to watch. X-Men in general is a fun title, and I'm talking about the book specifically, but also the line, to follow through this stuff just because it's been both a leader in terms of sort of changing changing the way Marvel worked, changing the way comics worked, and a fairly good barometer for existing changes in the environment around it, because it's seen as a steady central book. It's one that sells consistently. It's one that has a really big, really enthusiastic audience. So seeing where Marvel goes with that, what Marvel does with that, when they are or aren't more cautious, and the ways that it reflects their specific values and ideas at any given time can be a lot of fun and can be, again, a really good window onto the larger industry, or at least onto Marvel itself. Oh man, it's like a Rorschach test, except it's always shaped like an X with a circle around it. It's No, it's not really like a Rorschach test um, at all. I just wanted to come up with a funny mental image, but fine, rain on my Rorschach parade. I will. So, rains and parades aside, you've got questions. Richard is good asks on Tumblr, has there ever been a character whose design changes so radically without any real narrative reason behind the new design than Richter? I started reading comics in the mid-90s and had no clue that the Richter in X-Force was the same string bean as in early X-Factor and New Mutants. Neither designs even resemble the Richter from X-Factor Investigations, and he's now yet again a brand new man and Earth Mage in Excalibur. Heck, Liefeld's design at the end of New Mutants looks nothing like any of the others. What gives? That's a really good call, Richard is good. Richter may very well win the, like, repeatedly arbitrarily radical redesign prize in the X-Universe. Probably not the Marvel Universe, but maybe the X-Universe. I was thinking about this because, yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely the case. And I think I have, like, a no-prize-worthy explanation here. So, one thing we know about Julio Richter is that he's a pretty insecure dude. Often that manifests outwardly as anger, thanks toxic masculinity, but it also manifests as a heavily shifting sort of visual style and style of affect. As you may recall, the first time that Richter went punk was actually to impress Boom Boom in a really, really fun story, as I recall. So that brings up another tendency of Richter's, which is overcompensation. So I'm thinking maybe that's why his X-Force outfit was like extreme to the point of essentially incoherence. I'm not saying that's bad, but but wow. And why Richter suddenly bulked up far, far more than is possible, let alone reasonable, between one issue and the next. Richter's also a character who we've seen canonically struggling a lot with self-image and self-definition. And the idea that he's he's trying on sort of these different relative extremes or trying to model himself after people he knows who seem to have their shit together really fits well with that. Yeah. Well, and then when you see him at his lowest, he also kind of backs away from it. He just stops trying. He stops caring. I'm thinking about his low-key st scruffy civilian look from the beginning of the X-Factor Investigations era where he's just incredibly depressed. He'd lost his powers, one of his only points of identity, and he didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. So yeah, he wasn't emulating anybody's style. 
Although ironically, at the same time, that's very, very much in line with his look at the end of this arc. As he leaves? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and as far as the present day thing you mentioned with him being an earth mage, a druid, basically, yeah, once again, he's always going to flag really hard for his click, and now his click is druids. I want him to grow a gigantic goddamn beard and, like, weave some flowers into it. It would be beautiful. Miles, not everyone can be an ice wizard. He'd be an earth wizard. It would be, like, ice, but, you know, filthy. Anyway, Chairface Chippendale asks on Tumblr, I accidentally carved half my name into the moon, but then I got... Oh, wait, that was the other Chairface Chippendale. Chairface Chippendale actually asks, One of the conceits of post-House of X Powers of Ten X-Men has been giving characters access to some of their old costumes, e.g. Jean's Marvel Girl outfit. Are there any classic costumes you would particularly enjoy seeing come out of retirement? Are there any that make you wake up with a cold sweat, dreading the remotest possibility of the return? I can't decide which category Havoc's Inferno outfit falls into for me. Okay, I think Havoc returning to his Inferno outfit would call for a very specific character beat, so it's for me less a question of whether I'd want to see the outfit than whether I'd want to see the plot go there. However, and I recognize that I am part of a small minority when I say this, I love Angel's costume with the suspenders. I fully recognize that it is it is objectively probably a bad costume, but it's really fun, and it makes me very happy. I love that you mentioned that as one you want to see again. I actually wrote down that I wanted to see it again as well, but that was because I wanted somebody like Emma Frost or Jumbo Carnation to just confront Angel and demand that he justify himself with that costume. Actually, what I want to see is an extension of and plays on the stuff that we saw in the Morrison run with Jumbo Carnation and then later on with, with Kid Omega, where you see mutant fashion that's riffing on these early mutant costumes. That would be pretty awesome, actually, yeah. I mean, honestly, Marvel Girl's green dress, yellow mask outfit makes a way better, like, club outfit than superhero outfit. Okay, but Angel's outfit looks like high fashion in that it's kind of baffling. <laughs> there is that. And as for as for best left forgotten, um, I feel fairly strongly that the New Mutants graduation costumes should never again see the light of day. I thought Magix was pretty sharp-looking. Magix was okay. The rest of them should definitely, definitely go into the memory hole. You don't like that one where Cypher is basically wearing a purple janitor jumpsuit and then a bunch of random white padding and a stupid-looking helmet on top? While I appreciate the easy cosplay that goes with that, yeah, no, it's a bad costume. So I really like Rogue's green and white look, specifically the way it was portrayed in the early 2000s and the variations around then. Oh, damn. Yeah, same. Like the really sort of streamlined ones. Yeah. I mean, the green and yellow brash Southern Belle Jim Lee design is fucking classic, no doubt. But for me, there's just something about that simple green and white, especially how much it tends to coincide with her wearing hoods or cloaks or capes or whatever, that just really fits sort of the more bittersweet side of Rogue, and that's always a side I enjoy interacting with. I love the ways that the shapes of it and the, the iconography of it tend to intersect with the actual construction of her costumes. It's almost more of a motif than a single costume design, but it's still very, very stylistically consistent. And that actually fits the Sylvester era really well also, because back then it was the same thing, except green and black and too many belts, but like the details changed basically every issue. Oh man, I want everyone to wear like 90 belts and a jacket again. Uh, we could get Tetsuya Nomura to come over from Kingdom Hearts, he'd be all about that. So not that he's on Krakoa, because he's not technically a mutant, or maybe he kind of is, or maybe he isn't, it's ambiguous, but I miss Longshot's amazing haircut from Longshot Saves the Marvel Universe. Do you remember yeah, that one? Yeah, that, that was daring, and I liked it. I know there was a lot of pushback against it, but I appreciated it, and I doubly appreciated it, because if I recall correctly, it was a haircut that, that the artist had given one of his friends in the fairly recent past. <laughs> I think so. I I'm not even going to try to describe it, but uh, Jay, please put that in the visual companion. The world must know. It was asymmetrical and pretty great. So we mentioned uh, Jean earlier, and in fact, that was in the, uh, the initial question. I never really got the hang of that green mini dress thing. It just seems so impractical to wear a mini dress when one of your deals is flying. Like, I know Jean didn't really fly much back in the Silver Age, but, but still. So this may be naive of me, but I have Always, as a diva, I assumed this with Supergirl, I assumed this with every single one of the flying, actually really just any, every single one of the miniskirt superheroes, I assumed that their, their costumes worked like figure skating costumes, where there was a skirt, but the skirt was like an attachment onto a matching leotard. 
probably, yeah. I guess it probably depends on the artist in question how that's going to be interpreted. But honestly, what I'd love to see is the outfit we just saw in Giant Size X-Men Jean Grey and Emma Frost. The one where she's in like a green and yellow variation of her X-Men Red outfit, which itself is a variation of her 90s outfit. I thought that looked rad as hell, and that fits her so perfectly. She looks just... I don't know, she just looks fearsome in it. Like, very competent and confident and powerful. And that's Jean. I love it. I love Jean, but I have yet to see a costume that tops the original Phoenix costume. That is a phenomenal design, yeah. God, one of Dave Cockrum's best. And as we discussed in a recent episode, a design that predates the X-Men. Yeah, it's it's just so good. And I, I feel bad. I feel like in, in this way, Jean's costumes relative to the Phoenix costume kind of reflect Jean's perpetual crisis with the Phoenix itself, that it's you know, this thing that took over her identity and just did everything better. <laughs> Poor Jean Grey. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters or concepts. And today, with some trepidation, we are turning the mic over to Sabretooth, or at least what remains of Sabretooth. Victor? Am I Victor? Victor loves his holographic cabin home, with cute little animals hopping around. Fuzzy bunnies, pretty birds, soft deer, that guy Laws over there. Victor just wants to cuddle them all. Gentle, peaceful cuddling, with no ripping or tearing, or rending, or... Now Victor is on a hologram beach? With singing birds, and jumping dolphins, and little baby turtles, and Jake getting a tan, and Victor just wants to relax. Relax with some exercise, with some playful roughhousing. Come here, turtles. And now Victor's in a plain white room with no distinguishing features. Ah, nuts. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're on to X-Factor. As that team's lineup undergoes an overhaul of its own. 